Not one example of anybody in the Bible from Adam to John at the end of Revelation who lived a life that was happy, healthy, and wealthy. And not to say that we don't experience wealth and happiness and, and health and good health. And not, not to say that God doesn't bless us and give us those things. But to say that if you're not happy, healthy, and wealthy, somehow you don't have enough faith or somehow that God is un, not pleased with you, that's just not true. Listen, God, God can't love you any less. God can't love you anymore. He loves you so much. And the people that God uses the most, they understand that they're going to face suffering. The Apostle Paul, you can't argue that, that, that one person, you know, there's not too many people that fit in the category of the Apostle Paul when it comes to the idea of who was, was used by God more than anybody else. I mean, for goodness sakes, the Apostle Paul writes half of the New Testament. He spent years personally with Jesus post-resurrection. Do you know what Paul's life was full of? Like if there was one guy, I mean, that got as close to Jesus as you could possibly get in flesh and, and, and had, and had the, 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 the easiest access to communication directly with Jesus, it was the Apostle Paul. So you would think that if God's will for us was never to face difficult things and for there not to be some buy-in as Christ followers, a real cost of discipleship, then, then it would have been lived in the life of Paul. But unfortunately, what you find in the life of Paul is that nobody faced more trials and tribulations in the flesh than the Apostle Paul. Take this one. And we read this. There's a paragraph about this long in Corinthians where Paul is, is basically telling us the things in the flesh that he faced as a Christ follower. And just on one line, it says that five times I was given 40, 40 stripes minus one. Just unpack that. Five different times in Paul's ministry, in traveling the known world, modern-day Turkey area, um, and eventually ends up in Rome and Italy, and, and Israel and those areas where Paul planted churches, five different times they arrested him. They strapped his hands over his head, and they whipped his back 39 lashes. You, you, remember, you remember, it was a long time ago now, so if you're old like me, you might remember. But we had an American citizen who was like in Bangladesh or in Bangkok or something, and he did some graffiti, and, and his, his punishment was they were going to flog him. And it made national news forever, this flogging that this kid had to go through. And, and, and they, they, they showed people that had been flogged and, the, and still with the, with the things on their back and, and months of, of recovery. And five times Paul received basically floggings, 39 floggings for Jesus, for his ministry. Did Paul suffer? Did Paul go through some things in his life as a Christ follower? As a cost of discipleship. And it doesn't mean that and listen, um, you know, one, one of my favorite new sayings, I got it from Dan over here, is somebody who's becoming a, and been a disciple of Jesus and growing through this process. And he said, since I've become a Christ follower, he said, my life is not easier, but it's better. Not easier, but better. Not easier, but better. And listen, I wouldn't want to go through things in this life without Jesus. You know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The, 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 the three guys in the book of Daniel, when Nebuchadnezzar turned the fire seven times hotter, did Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, did God keep them out of the fire, or did they go into the fire? They went into the fire, but what was the difference? 
Jesus went with them. God went with them into the fire. And, and that's, that's such just the perfect lesson of, of being a Christ follower is that we go into the fire, but God goes with us. And I wouldn't want to go into the fire because had they gone in the fire without Jesus, they would have got burned up. But instead they came out and the Bible says their clothes didn't even smell like smoke. Because God went in the fire and preserved them and took care of them, but they still went through hard things. And so, again, I want you to be Christ followers. I want you to sign up. I want you to, to give your heart to Jesus. I want you, when we say the sinner's prayer, to mean that and say those words and, and ask Jesus to take every part of your life. But I also don't want to wait too long to tell you that the sinner's prayer is just the beginning. There's a cost of discipleship, and, and, and there's, there's a value in being a Christ follower. And, and Jesus said that nobody can be a disciple unless he gives all. Unless he forsakes all. So what is the cost of being a disciple? It's all. It's everything. It's everything that you have. There's buy-in. Because here's, here's what's going to happen if, if I don't tell you the truth. You're going to sign up. You're going to get your roller skates. And you're going to go out on the ice. And you're going to do your little twirls. And everything's great in Jesus for, for a little bit. Then you're going to fall down and break your ankle. And you're going to be mad at your roller skates. And you're going to be mad at life. And you're not going to... You're not going to understand what's going on. Or you're going to develop a theology that if things are going wrong in your life, that God is, is mad at you. And, you know, I've talked to people all the time, and it breaks my heart, but it's just the truth. And, and this is unfortunately part of the, the Christianity that, that we have and that we're selling. And maybe it's the church's fault because we're selling this stuff. And they're mad at God because their kid didn't hit a home run in the game. They're mad at God because their daughter didn't be picked captain of the cheerleading squad and they're mad because the genie in the bottle that we've created when they rubbed it and god was supposed to come out and and grant them three wishes and when things in their life aren't going according to what they believe god is supposed to be doing for them then then they're not following god anymore they don't want nothing to do with it they want to walk away and i don't want us to be guilty of that i want us to understand that that god has good things and if your daughter didn't become the captain of the cheerleading squad praise god Probably a good reason for it, you know, and, and, and you don't know. And, and, and trust the Lord, trust the Lord, trust the Lord that God's got your best interests at hand, that God has you, that God loves you, that God's taking care of you. Yes, all those things are true, and you're going to face some things in life. Amen? All right, I wasn't going to preach that sermon today, but I kind of did. So um, my real intent was just to share a little snippet, ask you to listen to the tape, because that's the sermon I preached on Wednesday night. But um, I, I do want us to, to cover what we're covering in Matthew today. So if you've already had your Bibles open for this long, let's get to Matthew. Should we like start over now? Because we're like doing a new sermon now. It's like two sermons. Hey, do you, should we pass the offering again? You guys get two sermons today for the price of one. Hey, how many of you guys are planning on staying and eating with us today? Raise your hand. So if you don't raise your hand, I can shame you. All right. Awesome. All right. Good. Yeah, we're going to stay. We're going to eat. Um, I got a little game. We, we planned a game for the uh, dating game that, that we had the other day. Uh, not the dating game. That's what we did last year. That's what we did last year at the, va- the Valentine's Banquet. So it's kind of like a Family Feud Valentine's edition, if you know what I mean. So if you can, hopefully you can handle it. You know, it's not too bad, but it's more like four couples and stuff. So there's a couple questions on there. They're supposed to be funny, but it'll be fun. So we're going to do that today after, and then we're going to do baptisms. And again, I know Pat mentioned it, but if you've never been water baptized or you want to be water baptized um, and you didn't sign up, you're welcome to come today after we eat, we play our game. We're going to, we're going to have the worship team sing us a song or two, and then we're going to do baptisms. Baptism doesn't save anybody. The waters of baptism 
only, all they do is they, they're an outward sign of what's inwardly taking place in your heart. Matter of fact, if you're not a born-again believer in Jesus Christ, if you're not saved, I won't baptize you. In order, in order for you to be baptized, I ask you two questions. Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? And if you can say yes to that, I'll ask you a second question. Have you asked him in your heart to be your Lord and Savior? And you've got to say yes to that. And I think I'm going to add a third question. And have you counted the cost of discipleship? And do you understand that there's a cost of being a, a disciple of Jesus? And if you say yes to all those questions, you're already saved, you're already born again. And then in obedience, we, we, do, we, we water baptize you, which is an outward sign to your peers of what's inwardly taking place already in your heart. Amen? Amen. Matthew 25. Let's look at verse number 31 for time. We covered you guys last week to verse to verse 30. So we have um, verse 31 to 46 left today. Now, um, just real quick and catch up. Um, Matthew 24, Jesus is giving the end time scenario. He's asking a question in, in chapter 24, verse 3, that the disciples asked about the end of the world. When will be the rapture? When will be Jesus's second coming? What will happen? And Jesus begins to detail to them um, an answer concerning three parts to their question. The temple in Jerusalem, the, the great temple that Solomon built, um, we're reading about it, we're studying about it in Second Samuel right now on, on uh, Wednesday nights as well. Um, the temple was destroyed in A.D. 70, about 35 years, 38 years after Jesus dies on a cross, rises again, the Romans came in and completely destroyed and sacked all of Jerusalem, including destroyed the temple. Jesus said not one stone would be left upon another. And that prophecy of Jesus was fulfilled to the letter as the Roman soldiers took every stone of the temple and toppled them off of each other. And Jesus was talking about that and detailing that. And then we get into chapter 25 and he gives a parable of ten virgins, five that were foolish and five that were wise. And the bridegroom showed up and the wise virgins had oil for their lamps and were ready to go. And the bridegroom brought them into the chamber and he shut the door. And the foolish virgins were um, left because they didn't have lamp oil for their lamps. And they went into town to get oil. And by the time they got back, it was too late. The door had already been shut. And then Jesus says at the end of the parable, he says, therefore, you should watch and pray that you're ready um, when, when the bridegroom comes. And so Jesus in 25, after telling us in 24, the things of the end of the world, the rapture, the age, begins in 25, continuing in the Olivet Discourse, the idea, number one, that we should be ready. So chapter 25, in context, is about being ready. Being ready, living your life with, with the, the readiness for the imminent return of Jesus Christ. And that means living your life in such a way that you know and you believe and you understand that Jesus could come back at any moment. There's nothing that has to happen yet prophetically for the Lord to come for his church, as the Bible says he will. And so then in, um, in, in verse 14, we have the parable of the talents. Now, the natural question is, if Jesus says to be ready, you know, we're going to ask, OK, OK, I want to be ready. How or what do I do in order to get ready? How do I live my life in such a way that I know I'm ready? And then he talks about just serving God, serving the kingdom of God, taking the things, the talents that God has given you and giving them back to God, using them for, for God's kingdom. And if you're busy doing the things of God's kingdom, then, then, then you'll be ready at the return. And then the last part of this chapter, he goes into um, a teaching on a judgment. It's called the sheep and goats. Everybody say sheep and goats. And that's what we're going to read about now, beginning in verse 31. Now, the sheep and goats... <clears throat> 
um, the sheep and goat would graze. And, and Jesus oftentimes used something that was familiar to the people he was talking to. But for us, unless you're, I guess, unless you're Dan and his family that's here and sheep farmers, this, this might be a strange analogy to you. But for, for those of Jesus's day, it would have been, they would have understood it. And so the sheep and the goats would graze together during the day, but at night they would separate the sheep and the goat, and, and I guess they would stay and sleep in different areas in different ways. And so Jesus is talking about this and uses this as an example. In verse 31 he says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory, all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory, and all the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his, everybody, Sheep from the goats. Okay, so this is the sheep and goat judgment. When does this happen? Well, in the context here, it says he's going to gather all the nations together. And and where we are um, in the prophecy that Jesus is talking about is at the end of the seven-year tribulation period. Okay, so we've gone through the seven-year tribulation period. Um, As you read Revelation, what chapters in Revelation tell us about the seven-year tribulation period? 6 through 19. Somebody's bold. Very good. Chapter 6 through 19. Everybody say 6 through 19. So when I ask you next week, you'll know. 6 through 19, detail, very detailed what's going to happen during that seven years. Okay? It says in the, in the first, when the four horsemen of the apocalypse ride, which is the first judgment that God is going to pour out during that seven-year period, that a fourth or a quarter of the, of, of the population is going to die. So we've already had the rapture. Who knows who the bride of Christ goes up and everybody who's born again believer in Jesus goes up in the rapture in the beginning. Then then he sends the four horsemen of the apocalypse to begin the seven year period. And in that judgment alone, we have the rapture, certain amount of people and the 25 percent of the population of planet Earth is killed in the first judgment. We go into another place and later when we get to the bold judgments, it says a third of mankind are, are killed in those judgments. So we have billions of people and blocks of billions of people dying during this tribulation. The Bible says that, that when, when Jesus comes back at the end of seven years, he's riding on a what? White horse. And where's the church? Right? So you want to be looking at Jesus' back at the Battle of Armageddon, right? Because if you're seeing his face at the Battle of Armageddon, it's not going to go well for you. Okay, so we want to be looking at his back, but we're on white horses, the Bible says, with him as he returns. And that's what we call the second coming. Everybody, second coming. Second coming. That's technically the second coming. It's the end of the seven years. It's the battle of Armageddon. Jesus on a white horse, us with him. And, and the Bible says that there's an army of 200 million soldiers that are there. That we call them also the army of Antichrist. Where the 200 million come from? probably a conglomeration of lots of different um, armies and people that are left that are gathered under the control of the Antichrist. The only nation in the world today, which, which 100 years ago was impossible for this prophecy to be fulfilled, but today China can actually field an army of 200 million because of their mandatory draft and their reserves. But this army that, that Jesus is going to fight of 200 million is... It can be made up of, of, of all nations and tribes and people that are all going to come together under the, the power of the Antichrist. But after the battle of Armageddon, the Bible says that Jesus is going to establish a rule and reign for a thousand years here on earth. We call that the millennial reign. 
But some people that went into the seven-year tribulation are actually going to be alive in the flesh and go into the thousand years alive in the flesh. Some will survive. What that number is, I don't know. But I do know that for a thousand years, when, when, when health is um, restored and we're back to the way that it was when Adam and Eve, how, how, old, how old was Adam when he died? It was over 900 years old when he died. Okay? And, and the men in Genesis in the early days, they lived to be 900, 800. I think the longest guy that lived was like 965, 69 years, something like that. So a little less than 1,000 years. So we'll go back to that. We'll go back to those bodies, those flesh bodies, those that go through. And when you're healthy and you're designed to live for a long time, they'll have children. Their children will have children. If you're still having children in your hundreds and in your 120s, then and your body is still healthy, there'll be lots, a huge population in the thousand-year millennial reign. But we will already be in our glorified bodies. We will have gone up in the rapture. We'll come back with Jesus. We won't have flesh and bones anymore. We'll, we'll have the same body that Jesus had when he rose from the grave. He told Thomas, put your hands in my side. So he had something that Thomas could touch. He ate food after he rose from the grave. He walked through, he walked through walls. They were in a room, and Jesus entered the room without coming through a door or a window. So he didn't have limitations as far as those things concerned. And he was in what, what Jesus teaches in John 14. He was in a glorified body. And we'll receive that same glorified body, and we'll enter the thousand-year reign with Jesus in a glorified body where the Bible says that those that were Christ followers here, those that were the bride of Christ, that we will rule and reign with Christ for a thousand years. Who, who will we rule and reign? We'll rule and reign the, the people who, who, who go into the thousand-year reign in the flesh and begin to populate and repopulate the earth. You know what's crazy? One of the craziest facts the Bible gives about the thousand-year reign of Christ here on earth is that at the end of the thousand years, it says that Satan is let go. And when Satan is let go, he, he, he's allowed to, to, to have one last rebellion. And guess what happens? Some people follow him. After a thousand years of perfect rule and reign of Christ on the earth, there's, there's one last rebellion at the end of the thousand years. And some will follow him. So, so this sheep and goat judgment that we're reading today, um, it's happening at the end of, and, I, and, I, and let me just say this. I believe that, that this particular sheep and goat judgment is the second coming of Christ. There, there are some, um, you know, you could read different opinions and ideas that would disagree or have some different thoughts. But I, I see this as the, the sheep and the goat judgment because obviously the Lord says, and in context here, something he's going to judge the nations and some are going to be put on his left, some on his right. And, and, and those that are going to be allowed to go into the thousand years, they're the ones that um, were, it was a moral um, decision. They were moral. They were, they were, they were right. They were, and so, you know, you can't earn your salvation, but this is not necessarily salvation. This is entrance into the millennial reign. And the very fact that, that the, the judgment here is based on a moral decision and on good works, and those that did good works are put on the right side, those that didn't were put on the left side. So the fact that this judgment is based on works alone can't be a judgment of any other sort. It can't be a judgment of salvation. It can't be a judgment like the other two that we'll look at. It has to be a, a judgment of the flesh for those that, that will go in the flesh, remain in the flesh, and go into the thousand years. So verse 33 says, and he will set the sheep on his right hand. Somebody say right hand. 
but the goats on his left. And the king will say to those on his right hand, come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. So those on his right hand will get to go into the kingdom prepared from the foundation of the world. And for I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of these, the least of these, my brethren, you did it unto me. And then he will say to those on the left hand, depart from me, you cursed into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So as you did it to the least of these, my brethren, you did it unto me. Who who are the brethren of Jesus? Some say us. Any other any other ideas of who Jesus's brethren are? The nation of Israel, his brethren. He's he's a Jew. His 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 parents are Jewish. His brothers and sisters are Jewish in the flesh. The nation of Israel. Again, once we once the the rapture happens, God's focus is the nation of Israel. Is the Jew. And so, so here in context, yes, maybe the church and the house of Israel. And so those that, that he's going to allow in in this sheep and goat separation, those that, that get the right hand of fellowship and not the left hand of destruction are those that were, that were nice, those that fed and hungered and, and, and did well unto Jesus, the king says, unto my brethren. Now you can make his brethren whoever you want. It, it's, 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 it's not really important to the story. I guess it is if... If you're here in that time, but we won't be here, right? It's not talking about us. Just be ready now so you're not here for the sheep and goat judgment. And, and you'll be, you have to be good at dodging hailstones and earthquakes and famines and pestilence and demons and an antichrist who wants to chop your head off. But if you can do all that and get there, then, then make sure that you've been nice to the brethren of Jesus, the brethren being the nation of Israel, being the church or whoever you make them out to be, because those will get in and those won't. And again... When we have a judgment here that's described to us that's based on good works, good works doctrine, right, is contrary to, to how we're saved. Okay? I'm going to talk about it in a minute, but I'll just give you a little precursor here. But, um, you know, the, the, um, the critics of, of, of us non-denominational uh, Christians is that we don't believe in good works. That's what they say. Because... because they, they have such a strong works-based doctrine. Let me tell you something about um, us. We absolutely, and you need to understand this, that we believe in good works. You have to do good works. That we're a people that are called unto good works. It's not that we don't believe in good works. All it is is that we don't believe that good works save you. We don't believe that good works give you a, a, a better position in salvation or in God's kingdom. That God, I mean, that God loves you any less or any more. But we are going to see, and what we're going to study here briefly, is that there is a um, very uh, important reason why we, we need to be a people of good works. Because there is a reward. And once you get to heaven, your, your reward in heaven is based on your works. And so, you know, you just don't want to get the cart before the horse. You want to make sure the horse is pulling the cart. And that your works don't drive your salvation. They don't drive your relationship with God. You, your relationship with God drives everything else. I focus first on loving Jesus. 
Everything I do is Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. I want to know him. I want to hear him. I want to love him more. I want to spend time with him. And as I get to know Jesus on an intimate basis, and I live my life around this this awe factor that I have opportunity every day of my life to spend in the presence of creator God and his son Jesus. And and, And then as I do that, and as I focus on relationship, naturally, what am I going to want to do? Good works. I'm going to want to do things unto God. I'm going to want to serve God because he's, he loves me and, and I'm responding to his love. So we just put the works in the right place. But works are very important. I don't ever want you to let, let the, your neighbors tell you we don't believe in good works or we don't do good works. That's not true. You, you, you really honestly can't, can't find a, a, a place or an organization that doesn't focus on doing good works all over the world. You know, I'd honestly believe just personally and can't prove this that, you know, Calvary Chapel by 1994 was the largest um, evangelical church in the world. Started in the late 60s and by 1994 had become the largest evangelical church in the world because of branches all over the world. And and Calvary Chapel has, has sent more missionaries and done more foreign missions than any other organization that I know as far as sending people out and being missional and, and serving God and, and doing good works. And again, we encourage you to do good works. That's why today I had um, Pat highlight for you guys that paper in the back. It's part of just finding something to do. And it doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, you, you, you owe us or, you know, get together with God and, and find out what the talents that God's given you. That was part of the parable that we read last week, right? The ten talents. And what are the things that God's given you? And what is it that God's called you to do? And where is it that God's called you to serve? And then when God comes for reward, God doesn't base reward on what you were called to do. You know, Billy Graham was interviewed by um, Diane Sawyer. And she asked him, she said, Billy Graham, she said, what, what do you hope happens to you when, he, when you die? And he said, well, I, I hope to hear my Lord say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. He said, but I don't know if I will. And you're like, all right, Billy, we know you're humble, but that's a little overdone, right? Like, if anybody in the world's going to hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant, it should be Billy Graham. But he was actually speaking to something that he understood. He wasn't going to hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant, because he preached the gospel to millions and millions of people. He was called and he was gifted and he was put in a place by God to be able to do that. He understood that the, that the fact that he preached to millions of people is not what, what was going to get him um, kudos or, or, or that saying in heaven, but it was his faithfulness to be obedient to the call of God. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. So God may call you to preach to millions, and God may call you to be a mailman and serve Jesus in your church changing diapers and, 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 and serving around the church and loving the people in your neighborhood and, you know, and, and doing something or being a prayer warrior. And, and on Judgment Day, when God judges you, he doesn't judge you because you didn't preach to millions and Billy Graham gets put on a pedestal. God, what God puts on a pedestal is the faithfulness that you had to be obedient to what it is he called you to do. And that's, that's just as clear as, as day when it comes to Bible. It's, it's the faithfulness to the call of God that you had on your life. What has God called you to do? Some of you may not know. Seek God. Ask God. You know, my, my best advice for being the will and doing the will of God and knowing what it is God's called you to do, and here's what I encourage you to do, is to get with God and find out what you're supposed to do in the next five minutes and be faithful to do it for five minutes. And then when that's over, get with God and find out what he wants you to do for five more minutes. And if you just keep doing that, eventually in 10 years, you'll be right where God wants you to be because you've been faithful in the, in the things that God's, God's called you to. Now, in the last few minutes, you guys, um, 
Let's look at uh, verse 41. It says, Then he will say to those on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into everlasting fire, prepare for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not take me in naked, and you did not clothe me. Same list that the other guys did, just in, in the negative. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they will answer to him and say, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? And then he will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did it not do it unto me. And he will go, and these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So here we have, again, the sheep and goat judgment. Okay? As far as, I, as, I, as I'm concerned, and you know, the best I can tell, this is the judgment that happens at the end of the seven years of separating those that are going to go into the thousand-year reign of Christ. Now, I want you guys to put a couple things in context. Um, so there's three judgments that, that are taught in the New Testament. The first one is called the Bema Seat of Christ. Everybody say Bema Seat. Okay, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Romans 14:10, Matthew 6:27, Ephesians 6:8 all teach about the bema seat of Christ. That's for believers, okay? The other one is found in Revelation 20 and it's called the great white throne judgment. Turn with me if you will, if you can find Revelation 20, um, the last part in your Bible. Let's uh, I draw your attention to verse number 11, chapter 20, verse 11. Revelation 20, verse 11. It says, then I saw a great white throne. Okay, that's why we call this the great white throne judgment. Okay, this is for, everybody, non-believers. Okay, so your answer is either going to be believers or non-believers. I'm going to give you a quiz. Are you guys ready? Okay, your answer is either believers or non-believers. So let's start with the great white throne judgment. The Bema Seat judgment. The Bema Seat Judgment, the Great White Throne Judgment. Okay, so we got that clear. So you're not present in the Great White Throne Judgment. And part of the reason is because everybody who's present in this Great White Throne Judgment gets thrown into the everlasting fire uh, for all of eternity. And so Christians, born again, those that are saved, aren't, won't be at the Great White Throne Judgment. It says, verse 12, And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one according to his works. And then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. If anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So that happens at the end of of the thousand years, chapter 21, what happens after the thousand year reign of Christ? Revelation 21. And what happens is John says, behold, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. So what's eternal heaven and eternal earth comes down after the thousand years. And that's where, and at that time, at the end of the thousand years, then eternal hell, eternal heaven. And then that's where eternity starts. And, and, and he says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. So then I want you guys to turn with me, if you will, real quick, to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning in verse 5. And this is where we learn over um, about the Bema Seat judgment, 1 Corinthians 3, 5. 
The Bema Seat Judgment. Believers or non-believers? Believers. Believers. Okay, that's where we're going to be judged. Verse, verse 5, 1 Corinthians 3, 5 says, Who then is Paul, and who is Apollos, but ministers through whom you believed, as the Lord gave to each one? I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then neither he who plants is anything, nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase gets the glory. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, and each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, you are God's building. According to the grace of God, which was given to me as wise master builder, I have laid the foundation and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid on, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw, each one's work will become clear for the day will declare it because it it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work, which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved yet so as though by fire. So this talks about the Bema Seat judgment. The picture here is, um, you know, the Olympics, we still use it today, but the Olympics came from ancient Athens, ancient Greece, and they had, as we do today, a podium with three levels. You know, you're up here, your gold medal, number one. If you're here, your silver medal, number two. And if you're here on the podium, then you're third place. Well, this, this Bema seat um, is, is, can be pictured as that podium, that Olympic podium that we stand on to receive award. award. And Paul teaches us here that in the Bema seat judgment of Christ, that believers will be present and everything that you do will be tried with fire. And so everything that, that happens at the Bema seat judgment goes into everything you've done, all the good works that you've done. What's amazing is the Bible says that God is at this judgment. He's going to judge the intent of your heart. It's crazy, right? That, God, that God's really looking at your heart. The widow who came to church that day and Jesus was there and he was watching at all the church give the offering. And then that day they put the, the offering bag up front. And everybody got out of their seats and came and dropped it in. It was a plate so you could see what was sitting on top. And Jesus was sitting on the side here in the church that day and he could see the plate. And the woman came up and she dropped the two um, mites in the, in the offering. And Jesus said this woman gave more than all the rich people in church who gave big wads $100 bills. Because Jesus was judging her action based on her heart, based on the intent and the, and the condition of her heart. And so in the, Bema, in the Bema Seat judgment, your works are going to be tried. And though you did good works, you prayed, you, you gave, you served, you did all the things that, that you did unto the Lord. But if you didn't do them with the right heart, those things become wood, hay, and stubble. And they go through the fire and are burned up. And no reward comes out. But the things that you did for God that were of the good motives, of the right heart, that were sincere, and, and that are your works, the Bible is clear. And if I had more time... I would read them. If you're taking notes, you can write them all down. Let me just do one more. Um, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 10, it says, oh, that's 1 Corinthians, sorry. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, it says, 
I just got to read 9 through 11. Therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing for the Lord. Here's the key, verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord will persuade men, but we, we are well known to God and also trust are well known by your conscience. Um, Jesus taught it as well that there was rewards um, in Ephesians. It teaches it. Ephesians 6, 8, Matthew, Jesus taught it. Romans 14, 10. Um, Paul's talking about the same thing again. He's talking about rewards. Um, I'll read Romans 14, 10. In Romans 14, 10, Paul says, But why do you judge your brother, or why do you show your... Or why do you show contempt for your brother? For, for we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. So the judgment seat of Christ is what's detailed. What Paul's talking about in, in Romans 14 is detailed in, in 1 Corinthians 3 that we read, that Bema seat. Now, let's just wrap up with this. We'll finish with this. You can close your Bibles if you want because it makes you feel like I'm going to stop talking soon. It makes you feel a little better, and I am. Um, what, what comes out of the other um, the side? You know, there, there's a reward in heaven. Now, what's hard to understand, which I, I can't get my mind around, but it is what it is. But the Bible is as clear as day. I just, I just quoted seven verses in the New Testament that talk about the believers being judged based on our works. So if you're going to be judged based on your works, is it important for you to do good works unto the Lord? Yes, we need to be a people that are doing good works, that are serving God. And I want it to be a pure motive because that's the only thing that God's going to bless in your life. Don't, don't give in our church. Don't, don't ever give your money to this church if you can't do it with a pure motive. If you do it begrudgingly, if you do it because you feel like you have to or it's part of the service, it's part of being, you know, and, and you, your heart just hasn't got around the idea yet, there's no reward for you. So don't do it because you're not, you're not gaining anything. You're getting nothing in return. Until your heart can get around, until God softens your heart, until God works in your heart, then begin to give when, when, when you can do it with the right motive. But, but as you do all these things unto the Lord, you know, they're going to be tried. Good works are important. But what is God going to reward us with in heaven? Now, now again, in heaven, it's very clear that there's going to be varying levels of rewards. Like we're all in heaven. We're all walking on the same streets of gold. How could you get like a little reward in heaven and be bummed out, right? You know, the jokes that we tell are kind of theological, but, you know, like the joke about the bus driver and the pastor. You heard that one, right? The bus driver and the pastor die, and they get to heaven, and St. Peter's there, and, um, and St. Peter says, Well done, thou good and faithful servants. Enter into the rest of the Lord. And he brings the bus driver and the pastor in, and, and, and he says, I'm going to take you to your reward, which are mansions, right? We use the idea of reward being a mansion because that's a word that Jesus used in John 14. And so he brings them down, and these houses are getting bigger and bigger and bigger and just palatial mansions and, you know, hanging gardens and the, the, the pastor and the bus driver are getting excited, and St. Peter looks at the bus driver, and he says, man, there's your, there's your reward, and it's just the most amazing mansion you've ever seen in your life. And, and so the bus driver goes in, and then he tells the pastor, okay, now come with me, and we're going to take you to your place. And the pastor's thinking to himself, man, if the bus driver got that, we can't wait to see what I get. And so they, they're, they're walking down the street, and instead of the houses getting bigger and, and, and more fancy, they're getting smaller and smaller and smaller on these streets of gold. And finally they come to these two boards that are leaned up against each other. And, and Peter says to the pastor, that's your house. And he's like, well, how come the bus driver got the mansion and I get this little lean-to? And 
Peter said, oh, that's easy. He said, when the bus driver drove, people prayed. And when you preached, people slept. But the idea of, of a reward being a mansion. Now, the funny thing is with our glorified bodies, I don't know that we're going to sleep. I don't know that we're going to go to the bathroom. You know, I don't know what the function of a house house like we have here is going to be. If, if, the, if, what, if what is our reward is gold and silver and jewels, what do we, God says that he gives us crowns. There's crowns that we earn, and we should be proud, and we should, we should study what those crowns are that the Bible promises and do the things that God promises or that God says we should do in order to earn those crowns. There's nothing wrong with us wanting to earn the crowns that the Bible promises. One of, them, one of the crowns, the, the Bible says, is for those that long for the appearing of Jesus Christ. You desire, do you live your life in such a way wanting and desiring and looking for the soon return of Jesus Christ? If you have that in your heart, the Bible says for those that do, there's a crown that you receive. But at the same time, though we receive crowns and jewels, the streets in heaven are paved of gold. So what's going to be a valuable commodity to us in heaven? What if God gives you a bunch of gold? Like throw it in the street with the rest of the asphalt. He gives you a bunch of jewels and crowns. The, the crowns that we have, it says that we throw them at his feet in adoration because we realize when we see Jesus, it's just like what, we have nothing to give of value. So the one thing we have are these crowns. So we take them and we throw them at the feet of Jesus because we just want to honor and serve and worship him. But what's valuable? What is it that, that God can give us in the Bema Seat Judgment and the refining fire that, that's valuable throughout all of heaven? And the answer is I don't know. But, but I, I have a feeling that some of the things that are going to continue to be valuable in heaven are people. They're people's lives that you invested in here on earth. They're people that you love, people that you shared the gospel with, neighbors that you invited to church that came and Jesus did a work in their lives and they got saved. And, 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 and they're there in heaven because of your witness. Now, they're there in heaven because Jesus died on a cross and because God did it, but God used you to be a part of it. God used you to share, to invest, and you gave your life, and you sacrificed, and you, and you did something to be missional and share the gospel, and you've invested, and people are going to be there because of your witness. That's a value in heaven that's going to remain. And then the other thing that's very clear is the Bible says that, that we're going to rule and reign with Jesus in heaven, or in the millennial reign, not in heaven, in the millennial reign for a thousand years. That, that doesn't continue into the eternal heaven. But for a thousand years, we're going to rule and reign with Jesus. And to some are given a certain amount of cities, some are given other reign. So maybe part of that reward in the Bema Seat Judgment is what level of responsibility that God's going to trust you with in, in, in ruling and reigning with Christ. Amen? All right, that's all I got. So, hey, three judgments. I just want you to be clear on them, right? Okay, let's go through them one last time, and then we're going to say amen. Bema Seat of Judgment. Believers, great white throne judgment, non-believers, we're not there. And then the last one is the sheep and the goats, and you're on your own with that one. So, all right, let's stand. So as always, we want to give you an opportunity to get your heart and life right with Jesus Christ. Hey, Brian, let's go ahead and come on up if you don't mind. I know it's getting late, but uh, we're sticking around anyway, so let's sing a song. We'll make them hungry so the food will taste better. We want to give you guys an opportunity to, to receive the Lord in your heart. If, you, if you've never become born again or you're not sure if you're a Christian, you're not sure if you're saved, and you just want an opportunity to say to God today, yes. And, and, and salvation is simple as this, saying yes to Jesus. You know, I, I, sh I shared a message today in the beginning, right, in my, my two-sermon message today. 
that there's a cost of discipleship, and I want you to understand that. And I want you to understand that saying the sinner's prayer is just the beginning. But there has to be a beginning. You have to become a believer before you can become a disciple. Before you can count the cost of discipleship, there has to be a starting point. You know what's interesting about, about that count the cost and not wanting to bait and switch? Well, Paul, when, when, he, when he was in Philippi and he was in prison and the angels came and set him free, the Philippian jailer fell on the ground and he said to Paul, what must I do to be saved? And what did Paul say to the Philippian jailer there in Acts 19? He said, trust in the Lord Jesus and you shall be saved. Could it be that simple? That's what Paul said. And then he doubled down in Romans. And in Romans, they said the same exact thing. Believe in your heart, confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, and you shall be saved. It's that simple. It has to be a starting point. We want to give you that starting point opportunity today. And it's a matter of your heart. But if, you're, if the Holy Spirit has spoken to you, the Father has called you, and you want, to, you want to get your heart and life right with the Lord Jesus Christ today, we want to give you that opportunity. So we're going to pray together. And as always, I ask everyone to pray out loud. And, and for those that are making a decision for Christ today, it's between you and God, and God knows it, and God knows your heart. I would encourage you, if, if you do make that decision today, to share that with somebody and tell somebody that, that God, God did a work. You asked Jesus in your heart today. Let's pray together out loud. Dear Lord Jesus, please come into my heart. Be my Lord and Savior. Forgive me of my sins. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. I believe that you died on a cross and rose again the third day. I ask you into my life to be my Lord and Savior. I give you all of my life. I understand there's a cost of discipleship. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Let's sing a last song, and then we'll uh, turn some tables and chairs around and get ready to eat.